All right, folks, we are live for another episode of The Conspiracy Farm. I'm, as always, your co-host, Mr. Jeffrey Wilson. I'm always joined by my co-host, my brother-in-arms, Mr. UFC Hall of Famer Pat Millich. How are you doing today, Pat? Doing great. I'm excited about this episode. Yeah, man, this is going to be a good one. We have on a uh, very interesting uh, subject today, a very interesting uh, guest. He has made some interesting statements. I've been checking him out on Joe Rogan's podcast and other interviews. Former Baltimore cop, former United States uh, Marine. Mr. Never Michael. former. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, he even has stuff to say about that. Mr. Michael A. Woods Jr. <laughs> joining us on the program. How are you doing, Mr. Woods? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I don't. I don't. I, I gotta shed like the interesting label too. I, I don't know what's so interesting about anything that I say. I'm just. Uh, I'm just a conduit, really. Well, I mean, come on, man. Like listening to your conversation with Joe. I mean, like he was even saying how refreshing it was to hear, you know, somebody kind of. And this isn't, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a cop bashing episode by any stretch. I have too many friends, families that are cops. You were just depicting and speaking on certain cops and certain cultures that exist in certain police forces that, you know, whatever they call it, that blue shield, that blue ceiling or whatever, you kind of busted through it, and that was kind of refreshing. So who, who the hell really didn't think that was going on? I mean... Yeah, yeah, but, you know, kind of what kind of the things you've talked about, you know, people set up a certain kind of cognitive bias, if you will, or a normalcy bias, where it's, you know, if you're not... Like you said, like you've mentioned, there's a lot of lack of empathy. So it's like unless you're from a certain area, you really kind of set up blinders. And, you know, it's – you understand what I'm saying? It's – Pat, jump in there too, man. No, I get it. I get it. And I, and from a guy who, you know, has worked in a city like Baltimore, certainly has a, a very good perspective on things with us. Well, yeah. Uh, talk to us about that, man. Like listening, obviously, I can't assume everybody's uh, heard your interviews and such. So, you know, you had, you know, kind of a childhood dream of wanting to be a police officer, went into the Marines. Kind of tell us how that uh, how that kind of got going, the Marine Corps and, and wanting to be a police officer. Yeah, you know, it seems like the story kind of changes as I understand more of what took place. And like I used to think of it as this this dream that I wanted to have uh, because, like, I wanted to help people or, uh, you know, I, I mean, people say it's a good thing. But really, like, I, th I think if you watch TV and, like, cops are glorified and it's in the movies, so it becomes, like, this, this thing that you can attain that has uh, cultural respectability to it, but you don't have to, uh, like, you don't have to come from the elite of society to get there. So now it feels like a, a little dirty. I feel like I went into the Marine Corps at 17, like trained to kill. And I did that because I was poor and that was my path to success. And then when I left there, naturally those, that skill set really only translated into similar types of actions on the streets in Baltimore. I didn't really necessarily have a skill set that, that would transfer over. So while it, it may seem like I was voluntarily going through this, I don't really know what other options I mm. truly had. This is like what, uh, I, I don't know, like, like, like how the dice really just were rolled for me and the paths and decisions that I took ended up being in policing and, and having served four years in the Marine Corps. And just like one day you stand back and you, you, as a Marine, like you're taught to think and you're taught to lead. 
And it's like, wait, we are just, we're not doing any of this shit. We are following an ideology. We're not evaluating anything we're doing. We have a uh, command staff that has no management training whatsoever. We have uh, racial disparities within the department. I realize I'm focusing all my efforts on a failed drug war and only in these poor black neighborhoods. And you just start learning, like the snowball starts where all of a sudden you realize like, I'm not 100% positive that we're actually beneficial to this equation. Very interesting. Go ahead, Pat. Were you going to say something? No, no, I'm fine. I'm listening. I, I'm letting him talk because I want to. I want to learn more. Right. Well, and it was interesting hearing kind of this culture that you talked about and that you kind of became aware of. Um, and I just found it interesting because, like, I, I used to live in Chicago and uh, you know a couple of the big cities. And I, you know, coming from where me and Pat come from, Davenport, Iowa, you know, the cops I was raised with kind of officer friendly style. So. And then what I ended up doing while I was in is I really started dedicating myself to kind of fighting the internal racism and fighting the system a little bit from the inside to try to make us more professional. And I got a little deeper into the science of criminal justice, got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. And I got in my, in my mind that what I was going to do was I was going to just do this from like a professional or educational aspect. So I started, I got out of the police department because I got injured and they just force you out. It's a mere coincidence and it's just a, a timeline issue that has nothing to do with anything. It's not like I quit out of, uh, uh, out of moral uh, imperative or something like that. I didn't. I was just pushed out. So I continued to work on, on the science aspect. That, that, was, that was what I was going to do. So I started doing my master's degree. I finished my master's degree, and I did that in business, business management and information technology, so that I would have that aspect of it. And then I was doing management education for my Ph.D. so that I could teach this stuff and try to approach it that way. And so the idea that things became sensational were pretty weird in June of last year when what essentially happened is I just watched TV and I was learning and uh, I'm, you know, I'm studying, I'm doing research the whole time and I'm watching in the public as uh, first uh, Ferguson issue kicks off. And then um, I see Tamir Rice get murdered and I still have like this wall up that like my department was bad and things are, uh, but these are still people I know. I'm, I, I can't even really justify the wall at this point in time, but it still existed. And after Freddie Gray was killed and the union and the you know, politicians and the chief came out and acted like there was no responsibility that you could put some, take somebody's liberty from them, put them in a mental box and bring them out dead. And suddenly you're not responsible for anything. I just, like that was absolutely preposterous. So that was the final straw where I, I just said, like, look, everything that we do, we have to be completely clean about it because we are just bold-faced lying to the public. So whether I get in any trouble for this or, or whatever, I'm just going to start telling the truth and being completely honest about everything. And I just tweeted it out thinking that no one would really pay attention, uh, went and finished weed whacking my lawn and came back and realized a lot of people were paying attention. So then it went on like that sensationalism circuit where it's like all these things that he's revealing. But then I was really proud most, mostly that I twisted that back into those solutions and we can talk about reform instead of all the things that really we know police do when we were just in denial about it. Yeah. And it was pretty stark, man, hearing the kind of <clears throat> the subculture that existed. And I know it's not just endemic to just Baltimore, but you were, it, it was very interesting, quite frankly, the, 
it's not necessarily zoning, but the housing issues that created certain racial disparities. You were saying within the deeds that were being sold of the homes that were being sold in Baltimore, it had certain provisions of not being able to resell or sell to a black family or a black person. Yeah, and the only reason I bring that up for the redlining issues is because that's really easy to research and see. It really goes into almost absolutely everything. When you uh, be more doc at B M O R E D O C, he's a Morgan State professor that really works on this a lot, and a lot, I retweet a lot of his information and the maps and stuff he puts out. But he he lays it all out for everybody. How this? I mean, this goes into bus routes. This goes into lead abatement. It goes into other environmental uh, pollutions. Investment in the community. Who gets taxed the most? I mean, it invades like everything. And so it's just a cumulative effect of all those various factors that just come together and make it almost like impossible for for safety and prosperity to exist in these neighborhoods by intent. Well, and, and Michael, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. So, uh, basically, through social engineering, we've created these problems, correct? In a lot of ways. Yeah, whether intentional or not, in all the aspects. Yeah, social engineering, or as a broad aspect, is a wonderful way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. So, what 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 I'm wondering is, um, usually, what the answer is for when there's systemic failure. For any program that the government implements or anything that they try and do, would it not be insane then to have the government get more involved to try and fix it because they tend not to be able to fix anything, right? I mean, maybe the answer is government getting completely out of the way and allowing people to to pursue their their own dreams and, and fulfillment in life instead of paying for all their food and housing and everything else so that they essentially come away with a feeling of, of worthlessness almost, don't they? Well, there's so many things that are involved that to have any general aspect of, of looking at it in any simple solution, it's just we, we've hit a sea of variables in these, in these kind of situations. So sure. the, the ability to pick any variable out and attract any correlate to it at this point is a little too flooded to even make uh, definitive statements. I would say the evidence tends to go against that position but we just simply don't know because we need to start isolating factors and actually caring about the truth of the situation. Well, I mean, let me, let me use an example of this. So for people that, that actually, and, and look, I understand there's a million variables that, that add up to this nightmare that's going on in inner cities and stuff. But if, if I look at a, a neighborhood where everybody on that street um, holds jobs and they own their houses and they take care of their houses, things are kept up, the yards are mowed, the, the houses stay painted, things stay fixed, um, as opposed to people that live in places where they don't, they're not the ones paying the rent, the government is, whether it's Section 8 or other means. Um, and you can see this on, on Indian reservations, even where the, where the people are getting free money through the casinos for, for just being part of the tribe. And you see houses completely dilapidated, um, broken down cars sitting in yards, things like that. Technically, uh, yes, there's a lot to go into this. There's a lot of different variables, as, as you've mentioned. But those people didn't actually earn those belongings, so they don't really care about it. Okay, so what that is based on, of a premise on is what you would be saying is, is if people get free money 
then the vast majority of them would do something irresponsible with that money. Uh, that's that's the fundamental premise of what you're going on there, and we can yeah, test I, that. I think, we, I think you're putting words in my mouth to a certain extent on that. What I'm saying is is that um, that that the self-image of someone who doesn't earn that money to begin with, they're not going to have a very high self-image of themselves. Therefore, they're they're going to lead a different life because of their mindset. Sure, that's something that we can test, and we have tested that in, in various aspects. There was a program in Africa recently that demonstrated this, giving $10,000 out to people. And, and they, set, they ended up doing wonderful things with it, starting businesses, uh, really uplifting their lives, and they, they, the, it was a vast success. And then you have examples like the lottery back in the day, and I think it was in Georgia or something like that, where they gave a lot of money, and it, and it all just went to waste. See, what you're doing is, is you're, you're thinking you're isolating a variable, but you're not necessarily isolating the variable. You're taking like broken windows theory, which is a social program where things, when they look better in a neighborhood, people tend to try and keep them uplifted. And that works and that we know that. So isolate that away. And then what you're also saying is that the free money that they didn't earn isn't it, you're, you're automatically saying that it's sufficient enough to overcome those barriers that are in place. So that's not true. If you give somebody $12,000, I mean, $12,000 isn't a sufficient amount of free money to enable them to overcome the hurdles that we've also put in place. Sure, but it is enough for them to um, subsist to a, a, to a low degree, obviously. But um, nonetheless, their refrigerator might not be empty and they might have a house, uh, a roof over their head, which tends to, in many ways, I think in my mind, and I'm just speaking from my personal experience where when I was young and had to leave college early to take care of my mother uh, who had heart problems, when I opened the refrigerator and it was empty, I chose not to go that route and I chose to have three jobs and bust my ass and eventually uh, wean myself off of those jobs as I won more and more money fighting and eventually won a world title. Um, so I think it's just if you give somebody a certain amount of money, what, whatever amount that is, there's always going to be a certain percentage that are going to choose poorly with that money, right? Right. So, sure. So, you have an equation, and whether it's more beneficial society or not is what we can figure out. And if you dig into this, you're going to find out that having social, pro social services that, that empower the poor, they uplift the entire nation. Um, Trickle-down economics is proven to be a flawed idea. It's bottom-up, and we know this. It's, it's been proving capitalism only works when you have a vast amount of competing resources, and then once it gets to a point where it narrows down, you have to put them back in to bring, regroup balance, and then maybe you actually have to go back to a more capitalism system later. And you're just taking these things and applying blanket rules to them, and they're just much more nuanced than this. Right, right. Well, I, and I'm, I come, I, I'm cut from the rug that thinks that capitalism is, you know, a, a free market society actually works really well as long as the government keeps its nose out of it. I mean, common sense regulations and then just taking their hands off the steering wheel, which obviously you and I both agree that we have an oligarchy and we've got serious problems in this country with the marriage between corporations and, and our, our government, um, which is going to cause these problems no matter what, right? I mean, well, Pat, let me ask you this. Do you think you would have success uh, operating a cable company from scratch right now? Well, no, but that's why. Why? I, I get, I get that. 
because that's not the well that's that would be like saying would i win a world title in fighting the day i decided to fight for the world title no right the no, day no it's not it's a, no that's that's not an accurate comparison so to have a free market which you need people people to have an equal footing to start off on you can't get into the petroleum business you can't get into the cable business, the publishing business, the music industry. You can't get into all of the energy industry unless you are part of the system because now you can't open oh, up sure. a mom and pop shop because Walmart. I get right. That. But yeah. that, that's capitalism without control. If you don't have the control and you don't say right now, hey, Verizon and AT&T, you can't merge. So if a government authority doesn't come in and do that and have regulations, this is what we get. And what we end up doing is we end up blaming the poor and we end up punching down. So think to yourself, whenever you're blaming someone that's below you, rest assured you're being manipulated by somebody above you. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. And I've <clears throat> look, I see it every day. I mean, I work in the television industry now. I, uh, and, and I've, I've been, I've sat in a million pitch meetings. I've, I've seen it all and seeing the people in, in control of these places, sat with network presidents. And, and yeah, I can see it. It's, it's obvious in any industry, as you mentioned, is, yeah, a serious problem. But the problem is, is that the government is protecting those massive corporations, um, therefore making it even harder for people to, to get involved in those types of, of enterprises. Yeah, and I think that's a claim that has no merit. So I guess we have to move on. <laughs> Well, the larger, I mean, I think the larger thing we kind of talked about, too, is the, you know, the, the inequities, the social structure, which oftentimes present, pre prevents these, these kind of come-ups, you know what I mean? It's, I think, Pat, kind of what you're saying, that's assuming that the, the playing field is level. You know, if, I, if certain people had $10,000 and you had, ten, you know, certain groups of people, even though they might use it differently, because the social system is set up the way it is, to not that's not necessarily equitable for everybody, uh I think just different opportunities present itself for different people. You know, if you had $10,000 compared to somebody in inner city Baltimore, the opportunities just aren't exactly the same. Granted, you know, people have to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera. But the playing field isn't exactly level, in my humble opinion. It's nowhere near level. I mean, it's impossibly nowhere near level. The amount of privilege that I have just from the, my appearance is why we're actually having this conversation. The fact that I am a free white male is why we have this conversation. Are you, are you in your, in terms of your appearance, are you referring, Michael, when you're, when you're referring to your appearance and, and, and having the upper hand, are you referring to the fact that you took a shower today and shaved or the fact that you're Caucasian? I mean, the fact that I'm, I look the prototypical ideal model male, which is the Caucasian Eurocentric look that is uh, what is designed as, as pretty in this country. It's what is accepted, and black is, is looked down as ugly in general. We know this. No, that's not true. I, I, come on, man. That's, that's ridiculous to, to say that. Sure, there's some racism out there, but to say that, I'm going to look at a black person and think they're not attractive and think that you are and I want to work with you. Is, that's really presumptuous. Um, 
It's presumptuous for you, Pat, but no, Pat, it's presumptuous for you, but it's not presumptuous for the population in general that establishes these barriers. This is true. We've tested it. I mean, please go research it. Don't take my word for it. We do psychological tests where they put things like pictures up and they judge brain responses and how people feel to things. And these are all proven, like that black males are seen as more aggressive, that black males are seen as older, that they're seen as being uh, more dominant or faster. All these things, we, we, we literally can go and you can look in the literature and you can see these things. Well, I mean, you're, you're talking to a guy that, and I'm by no means um, a guy that looks like I just got off a of Harley and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty clean cut and not a giant guy. I'm 5'10", 185 pounds. Um, but you'd be amazed at the number of women that when I'm jogging out for a run or standing on an elevator, the number of women that will go to get on an elevator, look up and see me and back out of it. So, so to say that, you know, I mean, I deal with that type of stuff every day uh, when I travel because I'm doing broadcasts around the country every Friday night and, and out training law enforcement and military everywhere around the country. So it's uh, to say that, that, um, I don't have that same sort of disadvantage to a certain extent. Uh, it, I just, I don't get it. I mean, yeah, there's people out there that, that have problems with race, with color, with religion, things like that. But I, I, I deal with it constantly. But, but Pat, I mean, honestly, would that be more or less prevalent if you were black and Muslim? <laughs> well, maybe it's just physically be, uh, my physical looks that I'm, I don't know, I'm in shape or do I look like a No, a no, 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 no. Exactly as you are, if you're black and you're Muslim, do you think you're going to have more or less discrimination? You know, I live in Iowa, so there's really not a whole lot of discrimination. I mean, you don't think you there's know, discrimination my, my, against a white black person, I mean, a black person that's Muslim in Iowa? Well, we have black Muslim people in Iowa, and they were. And you at my don't think July that's the society they, that's going to vote for Trump and all for him? A couple of them were at my Fourth of July party, so you know what I'm saying. No, I mean, right, I think, but that's I think the larger to you, right? I think, right. I think well, it's just. Well, it's, I, I think it's a, to the point I think is where we're all trying to get at. Like, yes, there is elements of this, but I think there is kind of a larger, and you even remarked on it, Mr. Woods, in other, other interviews, there is a racial element to it, but there is also a class element, a have, have not, because a black class cop. Is a factor of, right. a black cop these are all black factors, kid. guys. What's that? Right. These are, these are all factors. Right. Exactly. So black is a factor. Now, for you, Pat, being you know, intimidating is a factor. So if you add up black and intimidating, you've doubled the factors, and that's how it works. Muslim is a factor, female is a factor, trans is a factor. So all these things, as they pile up, so if you're poor and you're white and you live in West Virginia and you look intimidating, yeah, you're going to have a certain amount of discrimination. But if you were poor and you were lived in West Virginia and you were black, you would have an additional factor and you'd be subject to more. And this notion, so, I mean, I'm sorry. Not to belabor this no. point, but I mean, there has been kind of historically, I mean, you can go to movies like Ethnic Notions, you know, you, there, there were products on the, on the grocery store, you know, nigger hair toothpaste, nigger hair cigarettes, 
uh, Uncle Ben's Rice is still on the shelves today. You know, Birth of a Nation, when that came out, it was all this big fear about, you know, black men wanting to rape white women. And after that movie, you know, people were lent. People were killed based off of this fear. So, I mean, it, 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 is, it is real, but it isn't the be-all, end-all, you know what I mean? But we have to be aware of it. We have to at least acknowledge that it exists, you know, instead of assuming that, you know, it may be isolated. I mean, in Baltimore, like you were talking about, um, Michael, they, the housing, the way they put everything in a certain area, they called themselves zookeepers. They looked at the occupants of these, these neighborhoods as animals, and they referred to themselves as zookeepers for these animals. Am I correct? This is, this is, not, this is, this is not past. This is, that is still the current state of what I will hear when I am in a nice all-white rural community in Maryland where they think they're in safe territory and can say whatever they want. That's exactly what I still hear to this day. Well, in a big, a big, this is like such a huge conversation, but, you know, I would like to talk to you about, you know, multiple police forces. Pat, you've been training police for, you know, 15 plus years. Speak to, A, the training, the lack of training, which kind of creates some of these situations, because you've spoken to that yourself, that your Marine Corps training was absolutely essential in, you know, be, being a better policeman as far as shooting and such. Um, the us versus them, this adversarial relationship that, that absolutely exists and the role of, like you've talked about, empathy and respect has in this relationship. Either one of you, Pat. Yeah, I'd like to hear Pat's side. Yeah, Pat, let me know how, how it went on your side. You're, you have a perspective that I'm just not privy to. Well, what, uh, you know, for me as a civilian who's been training cops for about 20 years and, and military, it's, it's obvious to me, you know, I run into officers who are well-trained. And there's a lot of them out there, but there's a lot that are not. And unfortunately, um, and I, I work with the defensive tactics instructors, so I, I rarely, the only time I work with the end users is when I'm working with special forces, SEALs, guys like that, where I'll, I'll train 50 of them or whatever. But um, I work with the, the cream of the crop defensive tactics guys, and a lot of those guys have no clue what they're doing, which scares the hell out of me. And it's not their fault. It's not the department's fault. It's, it's the people who write the checks who have, you know, four hours of defensive tactics training for an entire year, eight hours usually is the, the max 12 if you get lucky, right? So for me, um, you know, I'm looking at these guys. Look, if, if I'm a police officer, I've got a gun on my hip and I have to go up to a car, me being a guy who's fought and over my lifetime, I've fought hundreds of times and I've been in some serious scraps with some, with some great fighters, but me walking up to a car, I'm going to be nervous. I don't know what's in that car. I don't know who's in that car. And then when I put myself as a rookie cop, who just got out of college, who's never been in a fight. That's, that's where the problems end up coming from is because these people are one petrified. They don't know how to talk to people. They haven't dealt with people who of, who might be, you know, rough, somebody who's, who's uh, got a, a felony or two, whatever. Um, they don't know how to, how to deal with them. And most of the time when these cops get killed, a lot of times when they ask the guy that did the killing, you know, why'd you kill the cop? And the cop will say, I didn't feel anything. I didn't get anything from him. Meaning that cop had no presence. That cop um, looked, looked helpless and it wasn't hard to kill them. And that's, that's a lot of times the situation and the mentality um, of these people. But, but no, you know, it's, that's, that's a big problem is, is cops that are not confident because when you carry yourself in a confident way, when you know how to take care of yourself with your hands um, many times you're not going to, you know, unless the person has a weapon, they're just never going to have to pull their pistol. I shouldn't have to pull my pistol 
uh, unless I'm getting my ass kicked by four guys or somebody pulls a gun or a knife on me. I got absolutely no objections to that. Can I ask, ask you a couple of questions? What's that? So uh, let me ask a couple of follow-up questions for that. I, I have no disagreements with that so at all. Um, the ones that you came across that were well-trained, who ended up training them? They spent a lot like of time. Was the or was it on their own and stuff? Yeah, they spent a lot of their own money to go to, to martial arts schools, jujitsu, Muay Thai kickboxing. Um, they right. Wrestled their entire life, that sort of thing. Right. Do we find that acceptable? Like, that the only cops that are have any defensive training and are confident are the ones that spend their own money and their own time to to get those skills? I mean, you're, you're, that's like every incentive is going against them to actually get to that level. So that should be something that we have to have throughout. You know, yeah. that is, it's like, yeah. it's a big duh. Like four hours yeah, a year. I, that's just that's so counterintuitive to, I mean, protecting yourself, let alone the public. Yeah, because unless you're in a, a major metropolitan area or a rough rough end of town, um, as Michael dealt with in Baltimore, where, where you know, there's some, some obviously very rough places, uh, most cops never pull their, their service weapon um, on someone that they're, that they're arresting. Most of the time it's, it's hands-on stuff. And, and they could be hands-on situations every day, but yet that's the weakest part of their training. But they have to recertify um, nearly every month with their with their pistol. So it, it, the the training is completely backwards, and it, it it really is. It's a messed up situation. Yeah. So Pat and I are going to see completely eye to eye on that. And what he's also pointing out is that there is that managerial ineptitude. So the idea that everything is incentivized for these guys to not be at that level is complete ineptitude of why we have to change the entire paradigm. Um, right. And so, I've had to, go ahead. Yeah. I've had to, I've had to reprogram the minds of the people that write the checks, uh, in, in ways of, we have to talk in dollars and cents, not in saving lives. That's not, that's not what they see. The, the bean counters want to know that they're going to save money on insurance and lawsuits by having well-trained officers, which they will. And that's how I have to teach them and explain it to them before, I mean, several times during my career of training law enforcement, where I've had to explain it to them by having a well-trained police force, there's not going to be as many injuries, there's not going to be as many deaths, your officers are going to be in better shape, and, and, that's, and of course you're always going to have the, the officers that are going to, they're going to pull up lame in training with a, with a fake injury to get, you know, get, their, get their time off, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, there's, I, I ended up with a theory because I was in charge of medical for a while that there just seems to be about a 10% number for any force of human beings that you just can't control the fact that they're on medical. Right, right. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything we can do about it. I, I tried to think and I tried uh, programs and I, I'm not sure we can do anything about that and that is something you just have to accept. Well, looking at, right. obviously, the, the training component is obviously a huge component, but some of those other kind of intangibles, the, the you've spoken about the two-way street of, of empathy that has to exist, the two-way street of, of respect uh, that has to take place. What, what can we do to bridge that gap? Because it seems like that gulf is growing larger and larger, that the us versus them is, is turning into a, uh, there's a pretty big schism between, you know, the two, the two parties there. 
So, so let me push back on one thing that Pat said, which will, which will lead into that. When he was like talking, well, I'm, I'm not saying, why am I saying it like you're not here, Pat? So when you were saying that uh, like going up to that car is dangerous, right? The thing is, is it's, it's not. So the statistical likelihood of something happening during that car stop for the amount of car stops that happen is, is, is statistically irrelevant. And we, we place it so high because we value the life of the police officer so much. That's what we've pushed in culture. But what we're doing in that whole time is we're not, value, we're not, we're not protecting and valuing the life of the suspect or the uh, citizen that we're exchanging with. And by fundamental principle, the life. Uh oh. Michael. The police officer is a hero. Say that again. Say that last bit. You broke up and we lost that last little bit of that statement. Hello. Pat? Michael. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. You hear me? Am I good? Okay. Am I good? Yeah, just something dipped out for a second there. All right. Go ahead. Okay, so the the life of the citizen and the life, which is the suspect as well, must be what's placed above that of the officer. That's what that's the fundamental responsibility to protect life, and that means the life of the suspect and the life of the citizen, not the life of the officer. That's why the officers are heroes because they put their life in charge as as a lesser thing than than that suspect. So we have to get out of the idea that we're being tactical in these situations. But we, while we don't want to be laissez-faire, we have to understand that these situations with citizens are vastly more likely to not have anything happen at all. I mean, the same people that make the argument that law enforcement has such a dangerous job doing these things are the same ones that think, you know, AR-15s and handguns are statistically irrelevant for the amount that's in our society. Well, if that's you know, you're bar- that's a hell of a lot more common than it is for an officer to have a deadly situation on a car stop. Well, we're definitely going to move into the Second Amendment conversation here in just a moment. And see, I think a part, for me, my personal opinion, a large part of this adversary relationship is the, the fucked up judicial system, if you will. Um, I like to call it, and it's a horrible term, we've all heard or seen the movie Reuben Hurricane Carter, The Hurricane. I call it being hurricaned. Like, you know, just because, you know, a cop can give perjurious testimony. They can plant guns. They can plant evidence. But when that's the official evidence, that's what the court's going to use. So in, like, Hurricane Reuben Hurricane Carter's case... He got tried two, three times based off of the same fucked up evidence. And I'm hearing you speaking. Um, uh, you were talking about uh, Michael. You were talking about the Michael Brown case. Yes, you felt it was a justifiable shooting, but you felt the prosecuting attorney uh, or the state prosecutor, whatever that's called, <clears throat> kind of cooked the books in how he went about the grand jury. What are your thoughts on not just the Michael Brown thing, but just the overall system that it is flawed that oftentimes you know puts people in jail erroneously? Because that whole subculture is protected, that oftentimes that cop, cop culture, subculture, is they're going to kind of protect themselves a little bit, a lot of it. Well, I mean, totally, we know that it's happening. I mean, we have, in Baltimore right now, we just finished the Adnan Saeed case, where he's getting a new trial right now for the evidence that we know is junk. And it's this whole system, exactly what you're saying, though, is that, like, it's not even these individual officers that are like, that's just one factor. And then you have this criminal justice factor where it's, it's all operated within this essentially a good old boys network where the state's attorney is intimately tied in with the police and the police are intimately tied into the politics. So this is where we all start beginning to see eye to eye. And the fact that you can't have government controlling the police department. 
you can't. Because what that ends up doing is, is you end up being all in that same family of, the, of, of who's talking to who, and who's helping who, who's incentivized to benefit who. So it's just the state's attorneys and the, and the police departments that are in, in collusion to send people to jail because that's just how the system is literally set up. Well, what did we so hear the recently? Way- the, the judge in Philadelphia or wherever it was was sentenced for however many years for selling for, you know, basically selling kids to the system a judge right he was he was getting kickbacks for selling children into the the juvenile holding facilities that were privately owned so these things we know absolutely occur and so the, the way we get out of that is we must put civilians in charge of policing it's not that we can go do our own thing and it's not that we don't need the money you need the government money because you don't have a profit incentive so the way to do that is to put civilians in charge of it. Yeah. So going back to the Freddie Gray and, and Michael Brown stuff, is it your belief that they were murdered? So um, Mike Brown, the main problem is, is that we just simply don't know. So I think that it's very likely that that, that shooting would have been ruled justified. I think we have a problem in what gets ruled justified. So I, while I'm confident that he would have had a justified shooting ruled legally, I don't know where the morality comes in if we would have known the truth. Without having the case and without everything being brought to the public light, we just simply don't know and really can't. None of us can make any real determinations. So the only determination I can make is that that prosecutor that intentionally manipulated the system, was a, that was a criminal act, and he's corrupt. Um, when it comes well, to Tamir Rice, but was there? I mean, there was there was proof. There was proof that there was a struggle inside the vehicle for the officer's weapon. Correct? There's proof. There that. is no proof. There there is no proof because no nothing went through okay. evidentiary procedures. Actually, There's no. Nothing. Actually, several, several investigators went through it, and they had an independent investigators go through it, and actually they they proved that there was a struggle. I mean, there was blood in the vehicle. There was a, a round that had gone through the door of the car. And the officer was getting his ass kicked, basically, and, and Michael Brown was trying to take And granted, all the pictures we saw of Michael Brown was him as a 15-year-old kid, but he was six foot five and 280 pounds. So uh, it doesn't matter if it's a, uh, a young man or a, a 30-year-old man that's that big. I mean, if he's, if he's hitting you and trying to take your gun, that's, that's pretty justified. Yeah, it is. Uh, how, big, how big was Darren Wilson? Do you know? Darren Wilson was probably 6'4", 6'3", something like that, but stuck in his car with his seatbelt on, right? Sure, but he got in a shooting outside of the car. But the bottom line is that we don't, you're, you're saying a detective, but I mean, like we have plenty of times where investigators, we know, we just discussed how they manipulate evidence and they follow narratives. They don't necessarily follow the path of professionalism. So the problem right. there is that we just don't know. All this is conjecture when it comes to Mike Brown. We do not know. We do right. not know well, what the argument would have been for Tamir Rice because, again, the prosecutors aren't seeking the same level of justice for police that they are against the, for, for citizens. And that's just not necessarily all their fault either. The system is just structured to protect the police no matter what they do. And if that doesn't high, if that's no more highlighted plainly than Tamir Rice, I don't know where it could be plainly demonstrated that no one is interested in justice when a 12 year old boy is, is, is murdered. I'll say murdered for him on a playground. I get that. I get that part. But I mean, even in Baltimore, your city, 
the prosecutor that brought charges against the officers there with Freddie Gray, where all those guys were, were uh, found innocent of all the charges, uh, the, the prosecutor's now being, um, she's, she's going to be prosecuted, doesn't she, where, for, and potentially disbarred for, for, um, for prosecuting those guys when, when she didn't have a case, and that's government involvement. No, no, no there, there, there's absolutely zero, there's, no, 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 there's zero chance that she's prosecuted for anything or charged on anything. For one, that would violate the system that we just discussed, and um, she, she, there is a case there. It's her ineptitude and her office's ineptitude to present this case uh, properly. Uh, they're completely, the way they're, the, that's, this is why everybody, whether it's the prosecutor or the defense, like the side that's, let's put it this way, whoever is supporting um, charges being filed and whoever is on the defense side, we all agree that the prosecution has been completely inept and that ineptitude doesn't qualify the merits of the case. Well, it's, I, it, I just found it interesting that, um, you know, look, obviously nobody knows what happened in that case, whether he threw himself into the, into the vehicle on purpose um, to injure no, no, himself. No, 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 you just made that up, Pat. You're repeating a no, line no, that no. you heard. I did, I did. No, 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 dude. No, that's completely imaginary. No, we know that he couldn't have used enough force to do that to himself. The medical examiner did that. We have testimony. At least read the testimony before we say that. That is not even on the board. Right. But what I'm saying is that's, that's, what, that's what one of the officers said, right? Isn't that that's what, fine. What they, they can believe? say that, but this has been in court, so they can say whatever. I don't give a shit what that officer says. The evidence is plainly clear that he can't do that to himself. We put a man off the streets for what isn't a criminal offense and killed him and brought him out of a metal box. If you want to find some justification for that, it's going to be immoral. I'm not, I'm not finding justification. I'm asking questions is what I'm basically doing. And, and I could, I, you can put me in handcuffs, and I can throw myself into a wall head first and break my own neck. I'm pretty capable of that. That's all I'm saying. But, but it, it went from his, his back, and, and he could. But how would you prevent that from occurring, Pat? Well, obviously tie him down, right? You would seat belt him properly. I mean, so that's the thing is you just have no excuse. The, the, I mean, not you. The, the officers in this case have yeah. no excuse. You cannot have the custody of a human being and then be entrusted to your safety when you took them, their liberty away and you even took their freedom of movement away because he's handcuffed and his feet are, are shackled. So he, you took all of his liberty away. You're 100% responsible for him to make any, any justification, uh, not from you, from, from the police and union side or whatever, that you can do that to a, a human being is, is, is ridiculous. Well, I, 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 look, I can relate to your empathy on the, in that situation and many of these others. Um, but having traveled all over the country and trained a lot of different police departments and, and talked to these guys and the number of people that deliberately hurt themselves um, and cause altercations so that they can file lawsuits is off the charts. It's off the charts. And so that is irrelevant, it, and that is irrelevant to the Freddie Gray situation. But it's, okay, but it's irrelevant. It's, but I'm saying that, what I'm saying is, is it, it definitely goes both ways. People are out there doing this a lot. No, it never goes both ways because you're blaming down. So again, whenever you are being, or when you are blaming someone below you who has less power, rest assured you are being manipulated by someone with more power and above you. With, did police oh, have all the power, all the equipment, all the personnel? <laughs> you're putting right? thoughts and words in my mouth. It's that's look. I, I'm not blaming someone who's below me. I, I don't, I'm not looking at it that way. I'm, 
I, I would be blaming someone who's looking for a quick buck. That's what I'm doing. I understand that, but you can't start with that presumption, right? So the officer always has the, has the responsibility to be able to distinguish that. That is on the officer. It is never on uh, the, the citizen to say, well, other citizens fake stuff, so I didn't give you the proper care. It's just a non-acceptable answer. Well, definitely. So if somebody, if, if, right. But if somebody picks a, if, so, if me as an officer, somebody picks a fight with me and starts punching me and they get hurt because of it, and they file a lawsuit, which was their intention to begin with, um, you, you, can't, you really can't put blame on the officer or the system for that, right? Yeah, but that's an entirely separate situation. Freddie Gray was completely not aggressive. Sure, I get that. So I would, I would, side, with you, I would side with you completely in that example. Okay, okay. Well, moving obviously we could uh, we could go a while because we have a couple more. Bullet I told points. you about this before it started, Jeffrey. None of these situations are going to be resolved <laughs> because they're too complex and too nuanced. No, but that's you know it needs to happen. You know what I mean? It, we need to have like a nice, pleasant dialogue. You know, without ad hominem attacks or any of that kind of shit. We need to just talk about it. Um, another aspect of this, you know, you might not go as far down the rabbit hole as of this possible coming quote unquote police state, but we do see the federalization of police, the militarization of so many police forces. MRAPs, all that stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on that? The the, the militarization slash federalization of our police forces. All right. So let me try to anticipate that Pat and I will agree on this one. I am completely <laughs> for military experience and military training and military confidence, but I am completely against the military equipment, except for SWAT teams and you know specialized use. Right. Pat, what are your thoughts? Right. No, he's on target with that. I mean, it's it's definitely. I, is it, do, you, do you look at it, Michael, as like the, the feds are kind of holding a carrot out in front of local police departments, state, state and local police departments, with all this, this equipment, this free equipment, and uh, these vehicles and everything else, um, kind, of, kind of greasing the, greasing the tracks for this stuff? Yeah, it's completely without question. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's blatant, and it's plain as day, and the evidence is there, and this is why you see, you know, MRAPs in, you know, Podunk, uh, you know, Mississippi out, and like, what the hell do they have an MRAP for? Well, and, you know, then, and then you incentivize people to use it, right? You give me, you, you park a brand new, you know, you, just, you take a Ducati 1200 outside of my, my house, and you put a little key on it, you tell me not to ride it, best believe it ain't going to be long before I ride it. Well, and this slowly gets us into kind of a, a big chunk of this conversation. So, and I'm, you know, I see the federalization and the militarization of police forces. They're in, you know, Department of Homeland Security and Social Security Administration, all these different government agencies buying all of these rounds. Seems like they're ramping up their armaments while seemingly, and we're going to get into this, wanting to disarm the public. Now, we've seen historically what happens when publics when the public has been disarmed, the potential of what can happen. Um, obviously, we had another shooting here in Orlando. We've, we've been having a rash of them. Um, and, of course, you know, right after that, it seemed like a knee-jerk reaction. We start hearing these conversations about gun control, gun control, gun control. Um, the guy who just did the Orlando thing, he had, like, the level Class G license, went through all the, the legal maneuverings. Um, seems like Chicago, a lot of gun control, but still a lot of guns. What are your thoughts on the Second Amendment? What are your thoughts on, um, yeah, what are your thoughts on the Second Amendment and this pro proliferation, if you will, of, of guns and what, what can be done about it? So the first part where you said, like, the government buying ammo and stuff like that, yeah, it, yeah I mean, it, it certainly appears that way, but we have to be careful about appearance. 
Whenever we want to attribute government officials to having any kind of coordinated plan, we should really rethink what we're talking about because these things are almost all a result of ineptitude or corruption. So the odds, the reason that they're buying so many rounds, I would imagine, is more likely tied to some contract they have with a round manufacturer who's buddies with the Clintons and, you know, they, they are fulfilling contracts to spread the corporate uh, welfare that we are hopefully all familiar with by now. So uh, careful of intent when it comes to government. <laughs> That's a um, way to look at it, of course. Sure, sure, sure. But I'm, there's so many ways of looking at it, but I always lean towards ineptitude because they are just so inept. But um, so on Second Amendment, um, he, he, I don't necessarily have a real position. What I'm saying is, is that the times have changed. Um, appealing to the authority of a document that is flawed from 200 years ago, uh, the thinking of elite white men from 200 years ago, is a logical fallacy. Um, we, we know this. It's appealing to authority. It is not a sound way to judge things. And they knew that. That's why they put in the amendment clause. So if we were to start from right now in the way the status quo is, I don't think there's any merit to the claim that our, our current situation is more beneficial to society. So I think it causes a much greater harm than benefit. Um, and I think we can rectify that because the founding fathers are smart enough to put in amendments and just the, the ambiguity. I mean, what does the Second Amendment say? Dude, I have no idea what that thing says. And that ambiguity alone should be enough of a reason that we go, okay, let's do an amendment, get the science together and figure out how to approach this intelligently with you know, modern day technology and modern day uh, realities of how the environment has changed. And it becomes a slippery slope. I mean, when we start doing that to the yeah, second, me, we do it to the first, and we're losing the fourth. I mean, I think, you know, the Bill of Rights is pretty... Yeah, let me, let me, mention, let me mention something. So, so Michael, your, your belief is that it's an outdated document um, that's, you know, it, it's, it's almost useless to you, but those amendments were put in to protect you, the citizen, and me, the citizen, and, and our families and the rest of the, the citizens in this country. How, how is that outdated? Um, to put amendments in that truly protect the citizen and their rights. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, Pat, really, you can't make the argument that an amendment is valid without making the same uh, uh, acknowledgement that a new amendment would also be valid. Well, what it depends on what type of amendment is it? An amendment for the government's power, or an amendment for the citizens to yeah. have power over the government? Yeah. I understand that, but at the time, at the time, the Constitution was one thing, and they said, oh, we need to amend this because things have changed and we've learned new information. I'm, exact, I'm asking for you to do the exact same thing that they did. I'm asking you to act like them. But the notion of, but the notion of, in, like, terms of the second, in terms of the Second Amendment, though, we'll just say that, uh, and even the first, and all of them, but I'll just pull out the Second Amendment. They said, well... Well, shit, the, the British government was trying to take our guns from us and overtaxing us, and that's why the revolution happened. So we can never have a government that can do this, that can just come in and take people's guns and their right to protect themselves from government, right? So that was – with these amendments, they were seeing tyrants down the road in this country's history, and they were putting those amendments in there to prevent that from happening. 
No, no, they were seeing tyrants from yes, their past. One hundred percent, dude. One hundred percent, bro. Okay, okay, they were seeing tyrants from their past. Understand that, okay? That their and past. That's the only thing any of us can do. And to no. protect and to protect the future citizens from it ever happening again. Yeah, tyranny didn't go away once the revolution ended. I, I understand that, but they made that decision. You have to understand that. They can only make that decision with the information of the past. They cannot make that with the information of the future. You would be appri- applying the ability of prognostication to a bunch of relatively ignorant people from 200 years ago who also believed in slavery. This is why these amendments are here, dude. We're literally acting and doing what the founding fathers did by considering an amendment, and everything is up for an amendment at all points in time. That's why they did it the way they did it. I mean, every generation has created an amendment except for us. All these things are on the board. If you want to lean on on that you can't make the argument from scratch, well, then you're probably in a shitty position. If you're confident in your position, then you should be able to be willing to have this argument and and come up with new and smart ways because you don't believe believe that – should you be able to buy a nuke? No. So you believe in gun control. It's just a matter of where the line is. So right, but don't, ahead, so, so how is the Constitution, how is it flawed currently? How is it outdated? The Second Amendment, we can sit here and argue validly what it means. We can come at this from about 10 different perspectives and all have a rational argument as to what those words mean. Mm-hmm. That's a problem. So what was, back then, what was a militia? I have no idea. And I have no idea what it, that it means was, in modern it, terms. It was, it was, it was neighbors, farmers. Uh, business owners uh, picking up their guns and defending their rights and defending their right, land. Right, and defending, but Pat, right. But Pat, but Pat, we would all we would all agree on that if we had some kind of documentation to say that that's exactly what they meant. And we also don't know what that means in modern times. The, I mean, the idea that you would think that an AR an AR fifteen an AR fifteen is not a legitimate weapon against government tyranny at this point in time. Well, and we can we can argue about that because, um, you know, look, you're obviously you were trained as a Marine. You were trained as a police officer. Are you going to be willing to be one of the guys who's going to volunteer for a for a lowly check that they're going to give you to go door to door and try and take the guns from American citizens like myself and and my co-host? I'm sorry. Who argued that point? Who am I? Who Who argued that point? Who who argued for confiscating weapons? Well, that's that's kind of the the feel I'm getting from you, though. On the on the second, I, I, I've never said that in my entire life. What you did mention so something you, about ceasing manufacturing from this point, like stopping the manufacturing, making uh, basically just bolt action rifles and shotguns the only kind of long rifles one can use, except for you know special dispensation, uh, you know certain criteria has to be met in order for people to own. Uh, something larger than that. You did. You have mentioned something about just ceasing the manufacturing of them. And if you do that, I think you know you're, you're increasing kind of the black market. I imagine. Well, only, without, why, why would you? Why would you make that assumption? Well, I mean, without you know, if, if there's no more manufacturing and then the guns are gone, look at kind of Chicago. The guns are supposed to be gone, but they're everywhere. People are still getting. I don't understand. I, I don't understand what relevancy Chicago has when we're talking about manufacturing. Why would stopping the supply chain? affect a black market people are going to get well here's here's the thing here's the thing it's it's pretty simple i mean 
Um, there's a lot of guys out there that know how to run a lathe and know how to manufacture gun parts. Um, and there's a lot of people out there with a lot of money who would pay them to make them anyway, criminal elements and things like that. So, you know, we see it. Uh, guns are illegal in, in Paris, but yet we see mass shootings um, of extremists going out and butchering people. I mean, it's oh, not God. Gonna... All right, all right, all right. Can, can we take one issue? At, can we take one issue at a time, real quick? So, so yeah. we have okay, Paris. So guns, guns are no longer being manufactured. What happens when guns are no longer being manufactured when it's illegal? Here, here's what I do know: is that once once they are not stop being manufactured, it will then be harder to get them. Okay, so the goal is to make everything harder and not easier. Absolutely. Just like that's your, that's your goal. So then the law-abiding citizens don't have guns and can't get them, but the criminals who don't give a shit can. That's exactly what you've created out of that thought. I, right? I don't understand why that, why that is. Why, why is that? I haven't made any guns illegal. I've stopped manufacturing them. So why, why is the system changing? I don't understand. Well, why are you why are you wanting to stop manufacturing guns? Because that's how we stop the supply. So if we stop the supply of drugs on our streets, yeah, people would start manufacturing their own, but that would be a hell of a lot harder and would have significant input. So if I stopped the flood of MMA fighters from entering the UFC, it wouldn't be very long while those UFC fighters that are there now, they may get paid a hell of a lot more and they may become bigger superstars than they deserve to be. But trust me, MMA would be over before very long. So you're saying if you stopped manufacturing guns, then eventually nobody would have guns. Is that what you're telling me? No, no eventually, the, well, of course, eventually that's going to happen. They have a lifespan. So uh, you're going to have ones that no, get clustered no, so, into... You're, you're telling me that you don't think criminals are going to have guns made for them. Are you telling me that? I think it's yeah, a so lot you harder. I think it's a lot harder to get a gun made for you than it is to go buy a high point nine millimeter from your local store. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot harder, dude. That's why they don't do it now. Sure, but if I want to be if I want to be a badass criminal and I want to do things with guns, I'm going to have one made, right? I mean, if I if I if I want to go and shoot 3D printer. If I want to go and shoot. Okay, okay, guys, can can we please keep it to to one issue? Okay. Yeah, on one issue. It doesn't change okay. the number of people who are shitheads, is my point. I understand it what you're saying, but you already have more guns than people. Okay, so where is this shortage that you need new guns from? Like, I don't understand your claim. So what you're saying is, is that you, all these people that are bad will have so many guns, and we're so afraid of guns that we need more guns, and then you're going to be afraid of guns because you need more guns. This is a cycle of lunacy. No, I'm not afraid of... I'm not afraid of people with guns because I actually carry one. Okay. And that's, that's exactly. okay for me to do. I mean, Michael, Michael, is it, is it okay for us to stand you when you were a police officer at a bank and guard the bank's money with a gun to have Brinks guys drive around with guns to protect money, to, to protect jewelry. But you're telling me that, that, and the rest of the citizens, that eventually it's okay that all the guns go away from the law-abiding citizens who just like to be able to protect their family with guns. Again, only the who, 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 who said, who, dude, who said take all the guns away? No one said this. I said that you can continue to manufacture shotguns and everyone can have shotguns. Shotgun is by far the best home defense weapon. So take that argument off the board. Yeah, but it, it, it's, that's what I'm saying is, is 
you're making that decision. You're telling me what I have to use, okay, because there's been some mass shootings, and yes, it's bad. I get it, okay? And you as a police officer probably saw your share of deaths. You saw your share of kids who've been shot, who died from it, and that obviously probably had an effect on you, why your stance is the way it is today, but it still does not trump the Second Amendment and citizens' rights to own weapons. Okay, so again, you're appealing to the authority of white men from 200 years ago, which is a logical fallacy. Then you're appealing to circular logic. Get over over white men, okay, because you're a white guy, okay? I'm a person. I don't give a shit whether I'm white, black, or brown. It has nothing to do with you. That has to do with who literally wrote it was rich white men. I am not a rich white man. Jeffrey is not a rich white man. I don't know whether you're rich or not, but that's who you're appealing to as an elite segment of society like the Clintons. Do we all agree with the Clintons here? Do we? What? No. No, no. Okay. 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 So that's the, uh, the class of people that wrote this stuff. All right, so that's who we're appealing to. What I want to do is have something where... Dude, the class of people who had the foresight to say that the citizens need to protect themselves from assholes that we just got done dealing with. Yeah, dude, via an amendment, and I'm asking us to reconsider the amendment. You can't appeal to an amendment while I'm asking for an amendment, and you're saying, no, the previous amendment. I mean, come on, think about that. So, Michael, what are your thoughts? I mean, we hear the term sensible gun laws, right? So outside of the stopping manufacturing, what do you think? No, 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 hold on, Jeffrey. We, we, We already said earlier, we said about Chicago, and so this is a great example. There are no guns that are manufactured in Chicago where the manufacturer sells them to on the black market to the streets of Chicago. Those are sold legally to legal gun owners in the county who then sell them illegally into the city. So they went through legal gun owners and you're blaming the end result for the legal gun owners that you're advocating for to have the right from. When it comes to Paris, those weapons came from Brussels and they didn't come from Paris. They have the border control issue of the gun getting in, which is a separate argument. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is sensible? What, I mean, what's the what's the I mean, do we need to expand background checks when we start getting into these mental health issues? They just passed a law like if you've been convicted of domestic violence, you can't have a gun. You know, this is going to start leading into PTSD. You know, military people with PTSD not being able to have a gun. What are your thoughts on this kind of um, whatever they're calling sensible sensible gun laws, background checks, etc.? Well, the thing is, is we have to start discussing these. We all have to have input in this instead of just saying, like, well, this is what this document from 200 years ago. We can't do that. We have to sit here and all have input. I don't want you to listen to my position necessarily. My position is just one argument. What we need to do is say, look, the, the cost to society, if you're, you can't, I don't buy the claim that all these uh, apparently uh, prognosticating potential things in the future about tyranny and all this stuff, I just don't buy them as legitimate threats in the modern era that are worth the cost to our society of 32,000 firearm deaths a year. I don't buy the argument that it's worth that. So just that I don't buy that argument doesn't mean anything. But the vast majority of this country believes some version of that. So we all need to come together, bring clarity to what the thing actually means, and start from scratch to say, what, knowing the information that we have now, what do we do? Well, so and what, what, where, at, where at in the conversation, though, do we start having a conversation about, instead of guns and the Second Amendment, where we start talking about kids being raised their entire lives on drugs like Ritalin, on genetically modified grains that screw up people's 
not only bodies, but, but the, their brains, uh, vaccinations and everything else. Where does that all come in that's actually the real root cause of a lot of this, along with the poverty, the abject poverty that right. we're dealing with? In the okay. Day? Yeah. Where, so, Pat, you, right. You have a legitimate argument there. So what, what is it's true. Like, so uh, logically, fundamentally, the gun is, is an inanimate object. Right. And there's all these other underlying causes. The problem is, is that these underlying causes are so complicated that we can't fix them in any manner that coincides with how with, with the gun being available. This is, that's our fundamental problem is that your issues that you're talking about. Yes, we need to focus on all those. That's what I want to change policing to focus on. And maybe later we can discuss again about another amendment because that's the point of amendments. But in this current so you realize, environment, you realize, you realize why we can't talk about these underlying things, the pharmaceuticals, the GMOs, uh, you know, the, the, the drug companies and the, and the food giants, right? And the partnership with, with government. Well, the money and politics. Yeah, because Michael we live in a goddamn oligarchy. Yeah, the, the money and politics. We talk <laughs> right. about that all the time. So, so what you're doing now, what, what you're doing now, when you know the truth of what's causing this, now you're jumping on the bandwagon with the very people you despise and talking about uh, controlling guns even more. Right? Instead I don't of, jump on dude, I don't jump on any No, no, I don't jump on anybody's bandwagon. Just because someone has the same position as me doesn't mean I'm jumping on their bandwagon. I'm not a liberal. I am not a a progress. I mean, I, I would go with progressive if I had to go to. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a conservative. I fundamentally look at this as a science, and I go from that point on. I I get what you're saying, and I do, I just don't buy that. What the measures that I'm saying have any real practical implication on the tyranny aspect or that the tyranny aspect is legitimate because then you need to make the argument for RPGs and tanks and all this stuff, and I think it's silly. Well, what do you think about, and this is something we could have touched on a little bit more. I mean, you've talked about the drug war. We've talked about it. I've had on Freeway, Ricky Ross, and not only just the drug war. In my opinion, this oligarchy, this criminal syndicate, they trade in people, they trade in guns, and they trade in drugs. And this is a global trade. Fast and Furious wasn't just something through Mexico. That's something that encompassed Benghazi and all of these guns and arms that went to Syrian rebels and all this other dumb shit that we help, you know, kind of uh, propagate to, you know, start shit in the world. What do you, you know, the kind of irony of, you know, government officials talking about, man, guns are so terrible, you know, and we can have that argument, while at the same time, this underlying government, shadow government, if you will, engages in just blatant arms trades throughout the world, which, you know, those right. guns are so who, who you're tying, right, who you're tying me to when it comes to that is people that are saying that, people that have a rhetoric. Those people that are saying that, they're not actually doing anything to, to, to control gun flow. Like, you know, it's going out to all the other countries. They're signing on board. They're agreeing to all these things. They say things. They don't actually do things. So that, that's one of our problems, of course. But you, you have a point that if you can end the drug war, well, I, I attributed probably about 80% of crime to the freaking drug war. Mm -hmm. So if you could succeed in the drug war before i uh, you know people succeed in the in the gun control argument you may establish an entirely different landscape that makes it a moot point I mean, I think this is, and this is the conspiracy farm, and this is where mine goes down this rabbit hole. I think this is a larger social engineering process. I wouldn't call it necessarily depopulation, but yeah, give them guns, give them drugs, and then just let you know, let the street justice you know sort sort themselves out. I think mean, this is not by accident. Or, or is yeah. there? Um, 
a la Operation Gladio, um, a, a more diabolical plan to, to ultimately disarm the citizens because there's so much violence with guns. Well, that's one way to look at it. But again, that's so sophisticated. All we have to do is look at who gets the money, just like any other investigation. Who gets the money? So who wins by us mass manufacturing guns, having mass shootings on the news, that everybody goes out and buy more guns, talking about Obama's gun control, which he never does. The person, only people that benefit from that are the rich elites that are running the gun companies and the kickbacks from government selling them to other countries. That's who gains from this. That's where you got to look to know who's establishing this stage. There is no reason for me and you to be one against one another. What we're against one another is because we're being manipulated by a culture that is, is wants all the money to go to the top and wants all the problems to go to the bottom. When this also brings in, you know, the, the, as you talked about, you know, the prison industrial complex, uh, you know, commercial corrections of America, you know, it's traded on the stock exchange. And part of their, you know, viability as a company is having no vacancies in their prisons. They need to put asses in the seats. And this kind of creates this perpetual cycle of, you know, the drug war and all of this. Sure. And don't even get caught up in the private prisons because that's a small percentage. So people will say that. But understand that every single prison is all the supplies, all the construction, all the, uh, you know, the paper, the handcuffs, all these things come from manufacturers who have something to gain by this system growth. Absolutely. Right. Boy, oh boy, I think we solved it. I think what well, I, I think we solved it. The guns are gone and we are safe and sound. Any final thoughts, Mr. Woods? I know we could probably go on forever, man, because this is a very all-encompassing conversation. And, yeah, there really are no solutions. But it, I, I thought it was cool to bring your mind. You know, Pat and I aren't monolithically agree on everything. So, you know, he has a certain stance. I have a certain stance. And you, you know, kind of articulated your position well on Rogan and other interviews. So I think even outside of this, these conversations need to happen. Because I think we do kind of get stuck and kind of intransigent in our ways. And we need to be able to have a free flow of ideas and dialogue to kind of evolve and not stay stuck right i mean look dude i have a really really nice and expensive semi-automatic fidelity shotgun right I, it is nice and under my ideas i lose it i get that you know but i'm willing why would you lose it that, that, would go, that would go to the confiscation why would you lose it no it's it's all semi-autos oh so okay. yeah i wouldn't lose it i could hold on to it but i can't be the advocate and then keep it right right <laughs> <laughs> so I'd have to go and I'd have to get a pump. But, and, and like, we can have guy, guy buybacks. Another idea that I think is good is, like, say you have a block, um, we can trade them in say, for a new technology. As new technology grows and we get smart guns with the RFID rings, we can do things like that. The whole point is that these discussions, like you're saying, are so important that there's no reason for us to immediately blank each other out on something that is filled with confusion. So let's just reset it, and your good ideas that you have that are valid will get into the new program because we live in a democracy and we will clarify all this. And imagine if we, imagine if we addressed the real causes of the problems in society that we wouldn't need the programs you're talking about, Michael. I agree with you. So I would love it if you guys would really jump on the bandwagon and push as many people as you can to end the damn drug war because, yeah, I think that changes the conversation entirely. But I don't live in that reality, so I have to operate in the reality that we have. Right, and I'm a, I'm a Rand Paul guy, and you know he's against, he's against the drug war. I'm against the drug war. So, um, yeah, we definitely agree. And we actually agree on a lot of stuff, Michael, and I'm, I'm happy to, 
to say that. Well, and, and me and Pat, we've had this conversation. We oftentimes get so caught up in the right, left, I'm right, I'm left, I'm conservative, I'm liberal, and we kick those political footballs around while these architects, these social engineers, if you will, could give a shit less and kind of do right. what they want to do while we fight about it. They continue to trade in drugs and people and guns and, you know, have their Luciferian sex parties with children or whatever their thing is. It's like... We, we, yeah, we gotta we gotta find the commonality of these the, arguments and not you know, that's so what, fall for the divide that, and conquer. And that's, that's why this that's why this podcast was born, Michael, because we want to educate people. We want people to to learn the truth, and they can research it themselves if if they think we're we're windbags and and find out for themselves, and and hopefully educate as many people as we can about what's really going on. And get educated ourselves. You know, I'm the first. I'm very Socratic. All I know is I know nothing. So I try to learn. You know soak up like a sponge whatever I can, having new information good, having good debates with intelligent guys like you Michael that we got educated and I like it <laughs> well thanks for giving me different perspectives as well and that's the whole point, I just want us to sit here and have it just like this and hash out our differences and we're all going to give and take and we're all going to learn things in the process well, before I let you slide my man, tell us a little bit about and it's very cool, Radio Revolver you got some pretty cool stuff going on, a new podcast coming up What tell us the, what you got going on with that yeah, man, this is, I guess we're getting close to, you know, actually being able to do this. What we wanted to do is start a studio. So one of my big things that I think we need to do in reform and police reform is addressing the actual underlying issues. And one of the underlying issues is that these communities, the kids uh, in impoverished communities, they don't get a voice. They don't get their narrative out. They don't have opportunities to learn things. So we're building a studio, a podcasting studio. We have it local artists painting it and we have equipment coming in and we're setting up a whole network so that we have like a turnkey system where they can come in whenever they want, establish their own podcast. Once we're in the red, we'll start, we'll start doing profit sharing to them and, and they'll, you know, have a, a leg up to teach other people and get their voice out and everything else. I don't know if we're going to stick with radio revolver, but we'll see what the title is going to end up being. It's just working for now. Um, Interesting name, considering the uh, Second Amendment. Yeah, you're, you had your stance on things. To me, it was a revolving prison door. So I was thinking Sally Ford. Oh, the old <laughs> Um So, and then right now we're going to do a podcast in conjunction uh, with Undisclosed, uh, which is part of the Adnan Saeed case. Um, and w this is going to be going over the details of what we know about Freddie Gray and how we got to these situations. For example, the idea that you're sitting in that redlined community that has no resources and Freddie Gray is out there being chased by the police because they're, he gave them a look. Like, how do we even get to the scene looking like that? Right. So we're going to do step-by-step step and break down that case in a more nuanced way to not just sit here and argue about, like, the laws or the merits, to actually argue about why it looks this way and how we got here. Right. Very, very fascinating. Man, this has been a cool conversation. I knew it would be, man. And, you know, obviously, you know, this stuff isn't going away. We didn't solve it today. So we're going to see more shootings. We're going to see more terrorist attacks. This stuff isn't going away. So we'll definitely have to get you on again, maybe uh, as Radio Revolver comes along or just later on down the line to have another, another conversation like this because uh, I think more than one is definitely going to be uh, – we're going to need more than one. 
Uh, that's absolutely not a problem. We'll, we'll catch up as time goes on, and hopefully we can have one where we don't even have to have the Second Amendment argument because the drug war is over and crime's at an all-time low. Well, that's oh, exactly. Yeah, good, stuff. good stuff, Michael. We appreciate your time, buddy. All right, man. Yeah, be safe. This has been Michael A. Woods, Jr. and uh, my buddy, Pat Militant, who is training for the Leadville 100. Six weeks to go, ladies and gentlemen, 100 miles in one day at altitude in the Rockies. Wish my man some luck. This has been Jeffrey Wilson, The Conspiracy Farm. Later, guys.